Hello, and welcome to Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and joining us today are three very special guests that we're pleased and honored to have on today. Lee Goodman, attorney and former chair and commissioner of the Federal Election Commission, Bartlett Cleveland, counsel and chief strategy and innovation officer at ALEC, and Jonathan Hohenschild, attorney and director of the ALEC Communications and Technology Task Force, joining us today to discuss an amicus briefing submitted by ALEC to the U.S. Supreme Court in Americans for Prosperity versus Becerra, the Supreme Court case that ALEC has filed an amicus briefing with. So guys, how are you all doing today? It's great to talk to you guys. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for coming on. So let's kick things off by giving a bit of background on this Supreme Court briefing. Now, first going to you, Jonathan. Americans for Prosperity, Vibisera, is going before the United States Supreme Court. They are hearing arguments concerning this case, and ALEC has filed an amicus brief with this lawsuit. At the core of this lawsuit is the question of broad donor disclosure. Now, to give our listeners some background, how did this become an issue? That's a good question. It became an issue when the Attorney General of California, at that time Kamala Harris, so now Vice President, decided that it would be a good idea for her office as part of the responsibility of the Attorney General to kind of police nonprofits to require all nonprofits doing business in the state of California to turn over their list of donors, which also includes contact information and things like that. After she proposed that, a couple different organizations filed suit saying that the disclosure of the information to the government effectively silences speech, or at least it discourages speech, because the government is not a good steward of the information. The government can use it against the nonprofits or the government, the people in charge of the government can leak it to their allies and use it for intimidation purposes. AFP and a couple other organizations filed suit. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit said the regulation is okay. And then the Supreme Court decided to hear the case. And so that's that's where we are right now. I'm sure Bartlett and Lee will get into the details a little more, but that's a background on kind of the regulation and setting the stage. Thank you, Jonathan. So I want to take it over to you now, Lee. What is the broad landscape, the main argument of this lawsuit against Becerra filed by Americans for Prosperity? What's the central argument we're seeing in this you know, case that's now going before the highest court? Well, there is a core First Amendment right of associational privacy. The Supreme Court recognized in a case called NAACP versus Alabama in 1958, that in order for certain associations to thrive, to be effective, that they part and parcel of the right to associate is also the right to associate privately and not have to expose all of your members and your donors to public ridicule, harassment, in order to effectively associate around causes and ideas. And since 1958, the protection for this right of associational privacy has ebbed and flowed through various contexts. Campaign finance, for example, where the court said the government can compel the disclosure of donors to campaigns, for example, that was deemed an exception to this right of associational privacy. But since 1958, the lower courts have struggled, 
to find consistency and uniformity in protecting this right. The level of First Amendment protection has been debated. And the line between political privacy and its exceptions, such as the campaign finance area, have become blurred. And Justices Alito and Thomas have dissented in several cases, arguing for greater First Amendment protection for this right of associational privacy. And the California law that John just outlined is a direct affront to thousands of nonprofit and charitable organizations, religious organizations, who want to solicit Californians to become members and donors, but do not believe that they should have to turn over their membership lists and their donor lists to a state official and uh, state offices where they may be subject to inadvertent or sometimes advertent leaking and or subjecting members to retaliatory action by either other citizens or government officials themselves. And then, of course, there is a natural chill when you tell donors and members, your donation will be confidential, but we do give our information to the Attorney General of California, where you know about 100-odd bureaucrats can review it. And if you have large political stakes in California, perhaps you'd want to think twice, and some donors do. So there is a chill on the uh, freedom of association when people know that their uh, donor information is going to be exposed publicly or just exposed to certain government officials because certain government officials are not always the most virtuous protectors of people's right to associate freely without retaliation as well. And so the jurisprudential lines around this right, the level of heightened protection for it under the First Amendment, will all be heard on April 26th before the Supreme Court in these two cases uh, against California. Thank you. That's incredibly interesting. And like, what's at stake here? I want to go over to you now, Bartlett. Why did the American Legislative Exchange Council decide to file an amicus brief with this lawsuit? Now, why did they choose to, you know, file this brief? And what is at stake here for Alec with the Americans for Prosperity v. Becerra? Thanks for highlighting this, uh, Matt. But I'm going to broaden your uh, question, if you don't mind. The real question is, what's at stake for the country? Alec is just an example. And Alec has a great cautionary tale. But at the end of the day, this is not all about ALEC. I mean, it is about ALEC, but it is about U.S. citizens of every stripe, of every political persuasion, of every thought, whether today or in the future. So how does ALEC end up being involved? For about 50 years, ALEC's had a mission to serve as a forum for education and study and debate of ideas and then model policies amongst state legislators. Essentially, ideologically bent towards free market and individual rights. So not surprising, perhaps the people who might be involved in such an organization, they're all gonna be free market thinking folks who uh, put a premium on US citizens being able to express themselves as they, as they see fit. In 2012, so uh, about 10 years ago, nine years ago, Alex's ideological opponents decided that Alex shouldn't be in business anymore, and they began a campaign to defame, harass, and boycott Alec, quote, members. 
that is to say state legislators and sponsors and then organizations who become quote members of ALEC, largely based on complete misconception. That is, they, they try to blame ALEC for the policy ideas they disagree with that are happening in their states. But instead of, frankly, understanding basic civics that I think we all had as, you know, what, freshmen in high school, that any idea must pass through a state legislator's legislation before it actually becomes law in that state, they somehow blamed ALEC. And so along those lines, they decided they were going to ruin ALEC and eliminate its ideas from the public square. The harassment increased over the years, but a key element was always wanting to get to the ALEC list of members, that is public sector state legislator members, and the people who supported ALEC with donations and whatnot, and um, you know ideological support for that matter. So the campaign really, I mean, even up to this day, has been unrelenting on the internet where these folks have targeted individuals who are members or companies, in my word, trying to hound them out of being involved with ALEC, trying to make it somehow appear wrong that these uh, folks would be involved in forming ideas that, uh, frankly, benefit individuals. So that whole campaign really got put on on fuel, jet fuel maybe, when the antagonists sought to enlist support of public officials in their campaign. And just as an example, and we mentioned this in the brief, in 2012, ALEC opponents tried to pressure the IRS and other state regulatory officials to investigate ALEC. Now, not everyone's as weak as uh, some folks, and eventually the opponents found public officials weak enough and willing enough to join their anti-First Amendment crusade and to harass ALEC members. The most infamous case, but certainly not the only, was Senator Richard Durbin of Illinois. He's clearly an opponent of ALEC's uh, pro-individual, pro-business ideas, and he blatantly misused the power of his office to target sponsors and individuals that he suspected either were currently or had been ALEC members in the past. He essentially wanted to end the voice of free market legislators, even in his own state, even in Illinois. So in 2013, the senator launched a particular thrust and sent a letter on official Senate assistant majority letterhead. So this is not uh, just a guy writing a letter. This is the U.S. senator who is assistant majority leader of the U.S. Senate. He sends a letter out to about 300 organizations. I happen to have been a member at the time of ALEC and uh, received one of these letters. But again, these were all people he suspected of being donors or somehow involved in ALEC. He demanded that everyone who received the letter to immediately provide, and he gave a date, I think it was maybe 30 days, whether it was actually a member of ALEC, quote unquote member, or provided any funding to ALEC. The senator proclaimed that his intent was to disclose the responses at a Senate hearing, and that's exactly what he did. He called out Alec, bragged that his intimidation tactics had hounded 150 members to uh, leave Alec, particularly Alec policy proposals in the states. He, even back home, this wasn't particularly popular. The Chicago Tribune, uh, for example, condemned his tactics. Others made the right analogy, referring to him as the, the modern uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy, as we all remember, uh, Joseph McCarthy for his anti-communist crusade, kind of communist behind every tree um, approach. No doubt the intimidation worked. Alex funding dropped, took about five years to rebuild the organization back to uh, its support. And while that's damaging in its own right, 
the far worse problem was that about 25% of Alex's membership and supporters left between 2012-2013. They focused particular threats on retaliation in state capitals against public sector members. Now, all public sector members? No. They particularly went after Democrats. Alec has a long, proud tradition of being nonpartisan. He has had Democrat chairs alternating years for, for decades, has had Democrat elected officials and other independents chair various important committees in the organization. And so this Alec was not a ideologically aligned, a politically aligned, let's say, organization. It was only ideologically aligned. And that was around that free market individual freedom that I mentioned at the top of my comments. So they essentially started tearing apart the fiber of, let's call it bipartisan or cross-partisan or, or omnipartisan cooperation and discussion around coming up with really good ideas for policy in states across the, the country. So again, they'd create a policy. This might be taken back home, reviewed by the legislature and other elected leaders, and they would decide whether it fit for their state and either pass it or, or, or not pass it or edit it and um, mark it up, et cetera, just like you'd imagine they would do. Alec has just been kind of the, the practice ground, honestly, and these tactics have continued. And what is odd, I think, all along is that there was a complete lack of understanding by the opponents of Alec, that Alec just sets a table, effectively, essentially, and that is the ideas around the table that are particularly valuable and, and wherever those ideas come from. And that is the experience of Alec. So resources were channeled away from doing that. Those resources should have been available for policy research, publication, education, et cetera. The bottom line is, I think Alec's experience is a, a stark example of the burdens and costs visited on private associations when ideological opponents, but let's get right to brass tacks, when public officials like Senator Durbin harass membership of an organization. It's a lesson in the misuse of disclosure of private association participants. At the end of the day, this is a First Amendment issue. It's the right of free speech. It's the right to assembly without government harassment. People like Dick Durbin seem to forget that such protections, those First Amendment protections, they're here to protect us citizens from politicians, not to protect the politicians from us and our ideas. Thank you, Berlin. That's incredibly, you know, you think you talk about that Chuck Schumer and all this pressure being put on, you know, organizations like ALEC. Looking ahead to the eventual ruling that will come from the Supreme Court, what type of impact are we looking at here with their decision? What's the long-term impact? What's the outcome if the Supreme Court does not clean things up and rules against Americans for Prosperity? And conversely, what happens if the Supreme Court does rule in favor? I know there's some nuance to every ruling, but I'd like to get everyone's thoughts here. Let's start with you, Lee. What is the impact of the Supreme Court decision later this month going into May? Well, I want to pick up on the point that uh, Bartlett started with, which is there are very big stakes for not just individual groups like ALEC or Americans for Prosperity Foundation or the groups involved in this case, but for all American citizens, all American associations of citizens that want to associate around causes or ideas, and we're not just talking about political ideas, but cultural and religious ideas and charitable ideas. So the first of that First Amendment right is at stake in this case. And in addition to the individual interest to certain associations and members like ALEC, 
there are broad social costs to diminished associational freedom under the First Amendment, because historically, the tool of compulsory government disclosure of members and donors has been used as a cudgel against organizations and their members over time in order to, as Bartlett mentioned, push them out of the public square. And we are all diminished because when that occurs, there are fewer associates, fewer associations, and fewer ideas develop in associations. We hear fewer ideas when they are pushed out of the public square. And so there is this broad social cost, and this cudgel has been used ecumenically by right-wing organizations against left-wing organizations. For example, during the Red Scare and the subpoenas issued by the House Un-American Activities Committee, for what? For socialists to name the names of their fellow travelers. The seminal case that this case hinges on, NAACP versus Alabama, hinged on the state of Alabama's demand for the donor list of the NAACP as a condition of engaging in civil rights activities in the state. And yet today, it is predominantly being used, that is the tool of uh, government-compelled exposure. It's being used by the left against the right, against groups like ALEC. And you can see, of course, examples of cancel culture all over your news every day. And Alex's brief makes that clear that the kind of cancel culture we're experiencing today must figure into the court's jurisprudence on the First Amendment. And fundamentally, that the court has a, a responsibility to referee the sort of the modern ideological and cultural wars that are being waged with this cudgel called compulsory government exposure of private associations. And so that's what's really at stake, and we need the court to reaffirm heightened constitutional protection for associational privacy. Jonathan, what do you make of what Ali just argued and pointed out there? Do you agree with Lee, and what else do you have to add in regards to the impact long-term? I definitely agree with the assessment, you know, kind of summarizing, but the danger long-term is simply that there's less political freedom and that the practice of intimidating state legislators and corporations will continue and will actually grow worse. If the Supreme Court agrees with Americans for Prosperity and disagrees with the state of California, what you'll see is just a a reaffirmation that the right of association the freedom to associate with organizations for particular causes, especially in the think tank world, the idea space, is preserved. And going back to something that Bartlett said, that transparency is something the government should do. So people should be broadly aware of what the government is doing, where the government interests lie, what the government is spending money on, and who is supporting the government but that privacy is for individual citizens. The idea of donor privacy is ensuring that the government government officials cannot intimidate the 
private sector. So ultimately, it comes down to if the state of California wins, donors will be intimidated. Government will be free to collect and use the information, the donor information as they see fit. And AFP wins, we will see the preservation of the right of association and the ability to donate to causes without fear of government retribution. Before we go, a quick message from Alec concerning an exciting event coming this summer, happens every year, a quick message courtesy of Alec. This July, join the American Legislative Exchange Council for its annual meeting in beautiful Salt Lake City. Join fellow thought leaders, listen to exciting speakers, and take part in building a better future for America. For more information and to register, go to alec.org slash Salt Lake. We'll see you in person in Utah. Well, let's go to you for this last portion of our podcast. What's your read on the ultimate impact long-term of the Supreme Court decision for or against Americans for Prosperity? Yeah, so I'm going to pluck a couple of chords that Lee noted, and because I think they are, I'm trying to find the right word to tell you the truth, but they're, they're certainly profound. They certainly go to the very underpinnings of, I think, not just who we are as, or what we are as a country, but who we are as a people's. And, you know, forget political, forget Alec for a moment. Lee went through a whole list of places where this would affect. So I'm, I'm just going to pick a couple because I happen to know people who are on boards of such organizations. But let's say an art museum or a zoo, for example. But let's take an art museum. I mean, what this would mean if the court ended up agreeing with California, it would mean that those institutions would uh, could literally with impunity be called to account in front of you know, a U.S. senator's committee because he hated a particular painting or a particular sculpture or a particular artist and could uh, demand the lists of people who were supporting the art museum and then call them in for a hearing and uh, shame them out of what they were doing. And there are people who are going to be in a position for one reason or another where they don't want that kind of information out there about them or, or frankly, just shy away from that kind of spotlight and having nothing to do with whether the government, in this case, the U.S. senator would be right or wrong in what they were doing, whether the IRS was right or wrong in what they were doing. It'd be all about how it made them feel. And that, that to me, is pretty profound because that goes right at the very heart of what it means to be able to freely assemble in this country, to be able to speak freely in this country, to go out and protest, to gather for a protest, to go worship the God uh, that you choose, to uh, worship in a way that you choose, uh, to not go worship. All of those things are at risk. And I don't think it's uh, hyperbola, and I don't think it's um, overly dramatic to suggest that. And And I do think that is the point of this case. So while it's interesting, you know, Alec is a a player in the public policy space. I mean, let's let's face it, people in public policy space have pretty thick skin at the end of the day. And Alec was able to dig out of a hole and come back and and continue to lead in the states with state legislative ideas. And to watch free market and individual liberty continue to be a hallmark of what happens in, in states across this country. But there are plenty of organizations that will not be able to withstand that kind of attack organized attack coming from oppositions, especially when they harness the power of, you know, U.S. Senate committees, uh, leadership in the U.S. Senate, the IRS, governor's offices, et cetera, across this country. And 
those are the table stakes. No less than that. And I think that's uh, what's at issue here. Indeed, a lot is on the line in this case. And thank you all, Lee, Bartlett, and Jonathan, for joining us today in studio. This has been incredibly informative. And thank you all for coming on today for the Across the States podcast. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and be sure to tune in later this week for more of Across the States. We will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.